Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Akil Jabber, host of the SaaS District podcast and investment director at Horizon Capital. Today, we will be covering three main topics with Akil. First, stage-by-stage company value creating metrics. Second, early stage B2B SaaS and cloud acquisition opportunities from both a buyer and a seller perspective. And third, top considerations to evaluate when selling your SaaS company. Akil, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today, Ray. Super blessed to be on. Appreciate it. So kind of quick background on my side. I'm actually a petroleum engineer turned entrepreneur. I actually worked in the you know white collar industry for several years and, and as many other engineers made that full-time leap seven years ago into entrepreneurship. But even while in the, I was in university, right, I actually launched my first business of a, a recruitment firm. I was actually hiring tech talent for startups all around the world. But I realized my passion was really around how do I increase my cash returns from the money I was making to really replace my income? Right. So I, that, that was about seven years ago. But even before that, right, like I really started with investing in the stock market. Right. That was the easiest thing to do. I think I was 17 years old. I opened up my first account, but I, I quickly learned some you know, hard mistakes after a couple of years of trading. And what I learned was, A, you don't have when it comes to public markets, you don't have a lot of control over so many other factors that are out of your control when trying to pick the right stocks. Right. A business can be affected by you know, turmoil or some news on the other side of the world. And that could plummet the value of your stock overnight, you know, say 50%. So there's just so much out of your control. It doesn't matter how much effort or time or energy you put into it. There's some things you just can't control. On the other side, you're also competing with the guys on Wall Street, right? They have a lot more sophisticated technology. They have a lot more experience in trying to pick better deals to invest in. I mean, these are guys who who do this on a daily basis. This is their life and how they make a living. So you coming in and trying to do this as a hobby or doing it a couple hours a week, it's just not the same. You've got to build that kind of skill set to be able to try and compete with them. And around that time, I actually came across the book you may have heard of called, you know, Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. And I learned about, you know, investing in cash generating assets, you know, controlling your own income, time, and how to leverage debt effectively. So use some of the cash I saved at the time and invested in some real estate in Canada. So, you know, bought one, then I bought the second one. And at this time, I'm, I'm around, you know, 25 years old. And, you know, buying real estate when you're 25 years old, it just feels so slow, right? Like I wanted results fast, right? I'm, I'm 25. I wanted to run. I wanted to make a lot of money. And, you know, making a couple hundred dollars here and there was nice on cash flow, but I, you know, I wanted something a lot quicker. So I still love real estate and I still own it and I still think it's a good investment, but I still look at it more of a long-term investment strategy, maybe, you know, 20 years return or so. So when I'm, you know, 40, 50 years old, you know, that, that, that money's sitting there and, you know, part of my retirement income. So then I invested in physical businesses, right? And I actually own a physical franchise gym in, in Canada. And that's where I learned about, you know, recurring revenue. What is LTV? What is churn? What is ACV? You know, retention, contracts, all those kind of things, but, you know, at, at a physical local level. But I still felt the limitation of that model at the time. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm physically dependent on one location. Every time I want to scale, it's super expensive, right? I've got to open up another location, you know, uh, restricted to the geographical location of that gym. And it's going to cost me, you know, between 500K and a million dollars every single time. But still good return kind of overall is to look at it like a five-year return. 
you know, and kind of looking at that, that's when I learned about, you know, digital and online businesses. And I bought my first online business from a broker called Empire Flippers. I don't know if you've heard about them. You know, that was an affiliate website, I think for less than $50,000 at that time. And I was hooked. So that's where I learned about, you know, conversion rate optimization, SEO, hiring, the remote teams, affiliate marketing, email marketing, all that good stuff on how to, you know, optimize the website. So that's around the time I, you know, I quit my job, joined a startup at the time. And then I also later on joined a firm called Wired Investors. So they were doing kind of what I was wanting to do. So instead of doing acquisitions of, you know, $50,000, $100,000 websites, they were doing, you know, these seven-figure acquisitions. So we call them, you know, micro private equity firm. So at that time, I helped, you know, raise some capital. And then I moved on to the role of being a CEO of, of a company they acquired at the time called $99 Social. So when I took on that role, I was able to kind of double the bottom line within five months. So I was able to double the earnings. And then I moved on to be kind of a group CEO of all the SaaS companies. So I was working with each of the CEOs of the SaaS companies, helping them implement different, you know, growth playbooks and, you know, helping them put in place different frameworks to help them, you know, really grow and uh, get better results for our investors and everybody involved. And then about two years ago is when I left that group and I decided to focus on launching Horizon Capital, which is, you know, the micro private equity firm that we have today and where we really just focus only on SaaS companies or B2B SaaS as our expertise. The funny thing is like when I started Horizon, the goal was no longer about, you know, focusing on cash flow was as it was years ago. Yes, even though we provide, you know, double or triple digit returns to our investors, but the real focus is really just about empowering entrepreneurship through a different path that many people maybe don't think about, which is, you know, having that partner who can really help them scale, take their business to the next level and provide that financial resources at the right time to the, the right buyer. That's kind of my background and, and where we are today with, with Horizon Capital. Well, that is a very interesting journey for a metrics <laughs> measure up guest. You're the first petroleum engineer we've had. Nice. You're also the first micro equity kind of private equity founder that we've had. So let's dig into that because our listening mm. audience, especially our B2B SaaS founders and operators will be very interested in how a micro private equity firm thinks. So first of all, Akil, before mm. we go into the depth of our discussion, I know we're going to hear things today like seed stage, series A, series B. Mm. And people throw these terms around like they're really commonly understood. But for our listening audience, would you mind sharing how you define each early stage of a B2B SaaS company, seed, series <laughs> A, series B? Is there a well-understood definition? Yeah, it's funny you say that. We get people sometimes, you know, who approach us and, you know, they're probably at like 400K in ARR and they're like, hey, I'm thinking to raise my Series B. And, you know, they're just trying to sound smart or whatever it is, but that's fine. I mean, you just have, I think different people have different answers, but, you know, I think at the seed stage, that's really when, you know, after you've raised your kind of first friends and family round or your angel round, it's really about, you know, selling yourself as the team and why you're the best person to manage, you know, handle this, tackle this problem, and you're, you're going to be, be able to build a solution successfully. After that, when you get to the seed stage, it's really about, okay, like I've built this kind of product, you know, early stage. This is the feedback we've gotten. This is some of the money we've collected and revenue we've got. We've shown some traction that there is actual interest for this product, but here is what our, our users have shown us of what they actually want. And that's is what, and if we implement A, B, and C, this is where we think we'll go. And that's at the seed stage where you're really painting a story of like, this is what we kind of done so far. This is what the results we've gotten. It's showing some early promise. And by getting some more capital, we're able to, you know, do it at a larger scale by building out, you know, full out, full fledged product. And that's where the seed stage happens. That's typically, I would say at least, you know, maybe hundred K in MRR. So I'll say, you know, maybe 10 K a month is generally at that point where people are looking, okay, I'm growing, I'm you know, still growing maybe 10% or more month over month, but I need, I need to build something better here and I need to hire a bigger team. Series A, I typically look at, you've built a good product, you've shown that there's you know, now product market fit, that not only you know, a couple of users are adopting it, but now you have you know, a thousand users and you're able to you know, build out marketing channels 
that have shown that there's high demand for your product. In terms of ARR at this stage, I, I typically see them at, at least a million in ARR. And that's when, you know, so if you're, you're at least a million ARR and you're growing quite quickly, then you say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to raise a series A. And in terms of series B, I mean, we don't look at that too much, but I, I typically see that, you know, above 10 million ARR is uh, what I've heard of, you know, other investors interested in, in coming in at that stage. Gotcha. Well, I like the way you did some of the more qualitative aspects of what you want to accomplish before you go out to raise your seed stage round, a series A round, and then a series B round. And I like the fact that you had some ARR ranges, but let me kind of move into, I know with Horizon Capital, you look at a lot of companies, kind of 5 million ARR in South for strategic investment requisition. Is that about right, Akil? Is that the size that you, your sweet spot? Yeah. So our sweet spot, you know, I think everybody, you know, as a, as a founder or a CEO, as a manager, you kind of have your growth limitation or playbook of A, where you have fun and B, where you feel, you know, you can make the biggest impact. What we found is, you know, once it gets over 5 million or 10 million, it really becomes, you know, more about high level management, putting, you know, different processes in place. When it's still at this early stage of this, like one, I would say one to 5 million, you're still working closely with the founder. You'll still be able to make so many small decisions and, and be able to impact, you know, the future trajectory by making changes in the product, pricing, you know, building out, you know, bigger teams. So that's kind of where the fun part is. But yeah, so we work with companies in that in that one to five million ARR. Most, you know, private equity firms, they're they're not interested in, in looking at companies generally, you know, less than 20 million. But there has been kind of a, a recent trend lately. I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of bigger firms now are paying attention to some of these smaller companies. And it's just because, you know, valuations, you probably noticed, have just been going up. There's just less, you know, bigger deals. There's so much more competition for some of these bigger ones. And, you know, there's so much money around now to invest in them. So a lot of them are actually going a little bit lower market and it's looking at getting interest in some of these, you know, five to, to $25 million deals as well. So it's interesting to see that, that change. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because COVID changed a lot of things. But specifically, mm -hmm. I was talking to a, a very large kind of merger and acquisition advisory firm that helps BP mm -hmm. SaaS companies find strategic buyers. And yep. they were saying private equity to your exact point. It used to be 20 million was kind of that threshold. Now, even some of the larger private equity firms will go down to 5 million. And then the cascading effect, top tier growth stage VCs, the emergent capitals of the world and battery ventures, yep. where they typically would want to come in at series A. In the last 12 to 18 months, they've been aggressively looking at seed stage funding, which they never looked at before. Interesting. Yeah, I think deal flow, I don't, I don't know what, if there's just a lot less deal flow, it's just a lot more competition, right? There's a lot more money out there, a lot more cash. SaaS is getting more attractive. You know, revenue multiples are going up. People are noticing that, you know, the recurring revenue, the value behind it, you know, just throwing debt behind it and, and you know, letting it stick and grow. But yeah, just, it's, it's interesting to see that how they're going downwards. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that, that's where, you know, they even go lower at some point, even to that $1 million deal. Well, we are the Metrics That Major Up podcast, Akil. So let's jump into metrics that you evaluate when you're looking at a strategic investment of a B2B SaaS company. But let's do it okay. in a, a more stage segmented way. So if you're looking at post-seed funding, mm -hmm. right? So that company hopefully is, you know, a million dollars of ARR. What are the top few metrics you look at when you're doing your due diligence on whether to make an investment or a strategic acquisition of a post-seed. Mm. And then next we'll talk about post-series A. So typically when we're funding a company, they're, they're generally either, like the companies we work with are generally bootstrapped. They haven't actually raised any money or mm. they've raised a, you know, a small seed round or maybe an angel round. So it's because we're not actually competing with VCs. And the biggest differentiator between us and VCs is going to be the growth rate. So that's probably the metric you'll look at. And when people are coming to us, 
they're not growing 100%, 200% or 300% year over year. They're generally, if they're growing that fast, they should definitely speak to a VC and you know they'll have their own kind of uh, criteria to look for. What we're looking for are companies who are kind of maybe flatline 10%, 15%, maybe 20 to 30% growth. And they've kind of hit that limitations. Like, look, either I'm a founder, I'm a product-led founder, and I, I like to focus on product and I've done zero marketing and I don't know, you know how to grow this. I don't know how to build a sales engine. I don't know how to build a, a marketing team. And they come to us and we're like, okay, perfect. We'll partner with you. We'll you know invest some capital, invest our, our team into this, apply our playbook and really take it you know, from that 20, 30% to now drive it to 100 or even 200% year over year. So the growth would be the big one. Uh, you know, 20, 30% is probably a good amount, kind of what we're looking at. Second is churn. So after, you know, revenue threshold, churn, we're looking for anything less than, you know, at the top end, 5% month over month. And that's like, you know, being, being nice. You know, right now, like, for example, we're looking at a deal right now, it's averaging about 1.1% churn per month. So that's, you know, a lot more attractive for us. And that becomes an interesting deal. And then the third thing we'll look at is customer lifetime value. So that's another one because we only focus on B2B. We like, you know, SMB, mid-market. We don't do too much on the enterprise side. Generally, we're looking at least, you know, 1500 or, or 2000 in terms of LTV. This one specifically that I mentioned is doing about 1%. I think it's just over, you know, 10 or 12,000 in terms of their LTV. So that's kind of what we look at in, in terms of making a decision if we're interested or not. Well, it's interesting. Growth rate, totally understand. Let's talk a little bit more about churn. Because mm-hmm. there's a direct correlation to churn rates in the annual contract value, that average annual contract value, and thus yep. CLTV. You know, if you're a 25K product, maybe a 14% annual churn would be okay. But if you're a 1K product, maybe it's 40, 45%. So do you exactly. differentiate based upon that ACV acute? Yeah, 100%. So that's if you're kind of more SMB focus, you know, maybe self surf model, you know, under $100, $200 a month or so. Yeah, I mean, ACV is going to be lower. Churn is going to be, yeah, close to that 5%, 6% range. It's it's not unheard of. You know, I've worked with companies in the past where it was double digits, 10 15%, but, you know, there's a lot of product issues that need to be resolved. But yeah, if you're a 4 5 6%, you know, you're, you're doing okay. Once you kind of go up to that mid-market and that's where you're focused, then yeah, your churn has to be dialed in. You know, generally, that's when you want to be less than 2%. And then you've probably seen this more, you know, probably know more about the enterprise size. But if you're doing enterprise, you know, long-term, contracts with enterprise, you, you know, you want to see kind of that, that negative churn where you're able to expand, get that expansion revenue and, you know, upsell different seats within the organization. Right. And that's where the value is. Yeah. And that's where definitions are so important because often mm-hmm. when we're talking about churn rate or the mm-hmm. inverse of churn rate is gross dollar retention, which right. is what percentage of your booked ARR are still in the books a year later after they've been yeah. signed. And net dollar includes the upsells and cross-sells where gross dollar doesn't. You're exactly right. But let me let me pivot to the third thing you said, which is customer lifetime value. And I mm. think this is one of the most misunderstood metrics out there because customer lifetime value takes into account both gross margin of the product, but also churn rate. And you really don't know what your churn rate is until you have at least one, if not two kind of good annual renewal segments. Do you agree with that? Or do you see some of the lower value? You can get a good feel in six to 12 months if it's a month to month contract. What's your perspective on when CLTV becomes a relevant metric? So I, I do agree with you that you do need enough data, but what you can also notice is a better way. What we've done is how we cohort and differentiate that is by the size of the company. So for example, like we'll look at a company and say, okay, they're working with users, you know, SMBs, and then they have the, you know, small businesses and then kind of the mid-market and they will segment it by like the number of seats. And let's say, you know, any, anything less than 
five users or so five seats or users are using our platform will now draw out a, a LTV based on that. And then anything between you say, you know, anything above five will have another, you know, LTV calculation based on that. Because what happens is people just, you know, provide a blended, blended LTV or blended churn. But I think if you segment it out a little better and, and, you know, based on the size of your company, then I think that gives you a different story. And we've seen, you know, that where that smaller market is, you know, close to eight, 9%. And then if we look at those users who are, are coming with five plus seats, they're, you know, close to that 1%. So, and if you just look at a high level, you'll say, oh, this company is doing, you know, 6% churn, but really it's, you know, if you break that out, you can, okay, look, we should actually be focusing on some of these bigger clients. And that's where the bigger value is. And that's where the real maybe market product market fit is here. Okay, you said something so important. It's that is cohort-based analysis. You're exactly right. If you've got one product that's going to the SMB and let's say it's five hundred dollars ARR, but you also focus on that mid-market or commercial and it's a five K ARR product, you got to look at all these metrics from both acquisition and retention very mm -hmm. uniquely. Totally agree with that. But let's mm -hmm. go into that. You know, a founder's got a company. You know, we've gotten that initial product market fit, but you know, we're only at that 10 or 20% growth rate. We just can't figure it out because we hear, wow, we should be at that 33222, kind of growing 3x year two over year one and 3x again year three over year two. And I'm at 10 yep. to 30%. And I'm like, what do I do with this asset? It's, it's got 500K or a million dollars a year revenue. And I'm thinking about strategic options. What mm. advice do you have for founders who are looking for strategic options for maybe either enhancing their performance or monetizing, i.e. exiting? Where do you look? You mentioned Empire, right? I know there's a, you know, Flippa does a pretty good job. Where do founders look to try to see what the value of their company is and if somebody wants to buy it? So I think first thing you want to ask yourself as a founder is like, why do I want to sell my company? If it's just about growth, you know, typically what we see when people are coming to us and they want to sell is, is that they've gotten to a point where they're not enjoying their day-to-day -day anymore. They've grinded this out for, you know, five years, six years, seven years. Maybe it's the first time as a founder and they want to get that first exit and they just want to move on to something else. So if you're at that stage where you're like, okay, I'm really just burnt out, I'm tired, or maybe you just need to find that partner. And, you know, somebody like us, we come in, we infuse some capital, we kind of take off a lot of the load of like, you know, the, the fatigue of day-to-day -day grind. You get to focus on what you really like, which is, you know, building product. And we helped, you know, work together and add that kind of, you know, breath of fresh air into this and, and really add more fuel to it. So that's one option. If you want to reach out to actual strategic buyers, you know, work with an M&A advisor and, you know, help, they'll help you find the right kind of person because they already have these connections in place, right? With the, the SEM rush, the Salesforce, the HubSpot, they, they have those contacts who they know exactly what they're looking for. They've already had you know conversations with them. They know if they're what they're looking to acquire, what kind of multiples they're willing to pay, and they'll make that connection if you're the right person and tell you early on. So I think there's a huge value. Another thing is they're going to get you a lot more valuation, right? Just like if you're selling a home, trying to sell it yourself versus working with an agent who can who can you know present your house a lot better and, and sell the story. In terms of places to look from that marketplace, if you want to use places like Flippa, I don't recommend Flippa just because there's a lot of, you know, low quality stuff. You have to spend a lot of time on there to find something, you know, half reasonable, but I wouldn't recommend that. A lot of junk on there, I would say. Empire Flippers is, is a decent place. So they're, they're also obviously a marketplace brokerage. They sell, I think they're more focused now has been more on e-commerce. So if you're an e-commerce company, I think that's okay. The other ones I, I like, you know, if you're very early stage, let's say under like 100K even in revenue, something like MicroAcquire. So Andrew Gazdecki over at MicroAcquire has done a good job. He has a free listing marketplace where you can sell. And then anything over that, like anything, you know, when you're above that kind of 1 million, you know, there's like Quiet Light Brokerage or FE International. Those are the two that I, I really like. 
and obviously our, ourselves at Horizon Week. We can also help you if you want on the strategic side as well. Yeah, I got the FE International. What was the one before that for the audience? Quiet Light Brokerage. So QLB. So it's Quiet Light Brokerage. Interesting. Now, I've never had a chance to actually exit a less than million dollars task company. I've had the opportunity to do several in the you know, 15, mm. 50, and even a couple hundred million. Mm-hmm. But if I'm a founder and I love my baby, right? I found this. I'm not ready to exit out. How important is it for me to say, I want to maintain majority control versus giving up majority control to the right partner? And the second part of that question is, will you take a minority position at Horizon or are you looking at always majority positions? Mm -hmm. So initially when we first started, it was all about acquisition, you know, taking control 51% to hundred percent and, you know, owning that. But what we found is, yeah, a lot of those conversations is like, look, I'm not ready to sell yet. I want to continue growing this. I'm still committed. I'm still excited to grow it. I just, I really don't know what the right thing is to do here. And I want to have a partner working with me to really, you know, work day in, day out to help take this thing to the next level. So yeah, we, we started kind of switching that model and where we work kind of that growth equity where we'll come in for a minority share, you know, act as kind of, you know, CMO, CFO, and really you know, help you guys take it to the next level. And when a company like yours takes a minority share, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, selling the company or going out and raising a lot more money where it dilutes you, do you typically have, from a voting rights perspective, do you try to have some type of right of first refusal, et cetera, or do you just go on a pro rata basis? So we'll go on a pro rata and, and we'll, we'll kind of have that conversation early on, right? It's like, okay, well, we can work together for, let's say the next year. And maybe after that, what do you want to do? Do you actually want to sell this company? Fine. Let's, let's find a way to build that exit plan. What you know, performance metrics and operational metrics do we need to focus on for the next year? We work together. Let's get it there. And then these are the you know, buyers we have in our network who we know are interested and in, that we know exactly what they're going to play. Is this what we want to get to and you know, sell together? And you know, we'll share kind of that upside. Or is it no, like, you know, we're at the seed stage, we're at, you know, maybe like 700K in MRR, we want to get to a million by next year, and we want to go raise that series A. Fine, we can have that conversation too. Okay, let's get us to 1 million. We already have a series A investor lined up. We'll have that conversation early on and then, you know, try to work towards that and reverse engineer the goals we want to achieve. Yeah. So it sounds like one of your pieces of advice to founders who are looking at that strategic investment such acquisition is know what your goal is. Is your goal to bring in, intellectual capital and smarts to be able to accelerate your growth rate and continue to run the business? Or is your goal to try to monetize it and move on to the next thing? But be pretty certain what you're looking when you reach out, right? So 100%. And I think you have to be very cautious on who you take on as an investor. I think people underestimate, you know, just taking on money from anybody. I think you have to be very careful. Like, I think this is, you know, kind of like getting married to somebody that you're taking money with them for the next you know, working with them for the next five to 10 years. It's not just the money. Do you actually enjoy working with this person? Do you enjoy you know, talking to them, working with them. Would you, you know, go out with them to have dinner? Would you have a beer with them? You know, those are all little things. And then, you know, obviously do they have the, you know, industry expertise? Have they, have they done something specifically or worked on similar companies? And do they have the right, you know, contacts in place that you can easily leverage at any time? So it's, it's not just about the money you have to think about. It's kind of the whole picture on who you decide to take money from. The other thing I see going on, I'd love to get your insights on this is we celebrate all of these big raises, yeah. you know, an example would be Gong, right? You're raising over a hundred million dollars on a six to seven billion dollar pre. You know, there was the acquisition today, of course, by Zoom Info. So I talked to a lot of first time and very early stage founders. It's like, oh, if I get up to a million, I'll be able to get 10x or 15x my next 12 months revenue. Cause that's what some of the best in class, both private and public company comps are. So someone comes to you and they're at 500K to 2 million ARR. They're growing in at 10 to 30%. 
level and I'm like, you know, I need to have at least 10 X, you know, my forward looking mm-hmm. revenue or, you know, companies like me in the same industry are getting 15 X. How do you have that conversation and how do you as a founder kind of set your expectations to be a little more reasonable? So I think that's exactly, you know, what you guys do is, is amazing in terms of benchmarking, right? So you, they're comparing, you know, apples and oranges when they're having that conversation. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know where that 10 X comes from, whether it's TechCrunch, whether it's, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, announcements of what's kind of going on with, you know, public companies or, you know, a lot bigger companies. And then they're just kind of correlating that back to their own company. Obviously that's not the case. If you can grow hundred percent year over year, when you're doing 10 million, it's, it's totally different than when you're going hundred percent year over year at, you know, 500 K in ARR. That's generally kind of the first conversation we have is like, Hey, look, what the valuation is going to probably be out of range. You probably have out of range expectations, but that, that's fine. Let's, let's find what, you know, what the real value is. And it's just showing them the data. And I think that's really it. It's like, look, this is what the market is showing. This is what your growth is. This is they're not us trying to lowball you. This is not kind of, uh, you know, us trying to get a better deal here. We want to make it a win-win, uh, but this is the reality of, of kind of what the valuations are. And another people thing I think they compare to is a VC investment, right? An acquisition is totally different than a VC investment because when I'm investing, you know, a million dollars into your company today, that's different because I'm basing it on the future value of the company. So I'm putting a million dollars and that I'm hoping that in, in, by next year, next two years, it's going to be worth, you know, five or 10 times the value. So I'm, I'm basing it on the future. Whereas with an acquisition, if I'm giving you a million dollars, that's going to be based on your historical. What have you done so far? What's the value brought in to date? And now I'm going to buy what you already have in place. Anything after today is based on kind of our input and, you know, it's, it's our value we bring in and the capital. So it's, it's a different conversation and just kind of educating them the difference between us and what the VC world is sharing in the news every day. Yeah, it's interesting. So having those personalized conversations with people who do this every day like you is is a great mechanism, but it's not very scalable. And I've found, even with our benchmark, to try to get valuations in that sub 1 million kind of, they haven't raised money or they haven't done a big VC round that gets put in TechCrunch. I have a hard time finding that data, Kiel. Do you have any sources for founders to go and look at what values of companies are less than... 1 million or so non-VC rounds? There, there isn't a kind of a public place yet. And that's that'd be probably a good place to go. I think the best place is literally just looking at those brokerage, look at their IMs, look at what they're selling for, what they're trading, you know, FE International, Microacquired. I think Microacquired, I wouldn't trust it that much just because that's sellers putting their own price. It's not, you know, vetted based on valuations or what's selling. A lot of them will just sit there because they're going to put it for 10X and they won't sell. But no, I don't have one that's specifically for, for SaaS. Hey, so so for Mm -hmm. some aspiring founder out there, if you can find Mm -hmm. a way to collect, aggregate, and publish this data, there could be an opportunity. But (laughs) unfortunately, Akil, you were coming up to the end of this episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. And I want to give our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better and benefit from your experience and insight. So my first question is this, is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow for SaaS entrepreneurs in 2021? I don't follow too many founders, but who I do, maybe somebody I follow and I admire is probably Mark Leonard. I don't know if you know him. He's the founder and CEO at Constellation Software. So I think he's probably like a, a leader in the space that I really enjoy. I really enjoy reading his annual president letters. So he releases that every year. And I think it's super insightful. He doesn't take a lot of, you know, he doesn't write anything. He doesn't release anything. He doesn't get on press, but once a year he'll release something. And it's, it's, it's amazing piece of work, what he puts out. And I think just what he's doing in terms of like the software conglomerate and acquisition space, I think they become a leader in the space. So I, I like to follow him and, and kind of what he's built and use that as a framework of, you know, our North Star of where we want to go. Perfect. So Mark Leonard at Constellation Software. Yeah. 
Okay. Second question. You look at a lot of early stage SaaS companies. Is there a tool that you recommend every SaaS company should consider using? So I think this one is, you know, what have I been using for the last five years? I probably just look at internally. You know, there's nice ones like the ones that a lot of people use, probably like Zapier, Trello, Slack, you know, those those are kind of nice, you know, day-to-day I've been using for years. One I really like that we've been using the last couple of months and maybe suggest people if they're doing any outbound sales and, you know, they have a SDR team is WeConnect. So they do, you know, for, for LinkedIn, if you're doing a LinkedIn lead generation, I like that tool. WeConnect, so it automates yeah. sending the LinkedIn emails? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Cause I think more and more people are saying that LinkedIn outreach has a higher engagement and higher interaction. So my third and last question is, and you're a petroleum engineer. So you went through this career journey yourself. If you were talking to an early career or recent college graduate and she or he thinks I want to become a SaaS founder, but I don't think I'm ready here because I don't have the experience. What advice would you give them over the next two or three years so they can become a great SaaS founder? Yeah, hundred percent. I wouldn't suggest starting off, you know, becoming a SaaS founder unless, you know, you you have some crazy vision and you have some rich family to back you and a lot of things lined up. I would suggest most people join a startup before building your own. And I I look at two things of what to look for if you're, you're looking to join a startup. One is, are they, are they growing quickly? So have they raised the round? Are they growing quickly? Because the faster somebody is growing, you're going to learn a lot more. And I think that's, you know, the faster somebody grows, you're going to be able to put on a lot of hats. You're going to be able to grow with the company, just a lot more opportunities. And second of all, is the leader you're going to be working with, whether that's you're working directly under the CEO or, or one of the, the management team, somebody you admire, and maybe you connect with, and maybe will be able to provide you, invest in you, whether the resources to grow and let you shine. Because I find that on all my career that or in, you know, with the, the entrepreneurship success I've had, it's always, I would say, back to people who, who've given me an opportunity and who really invested in me and believed in me. It's like, hey, I've got this, this idea. They come to them and they entrust you to be able to execute and give you the resources and, and challenge you to grow. So I think that's, that those are two things I look for if you're, if you're just you know, a recent grad and looking for a place to go. I could not agree with you more on that. Finding a person that you can learn from and who will actively mentor and help you grow. Having great mentors throughout your career is an irreplaceable asset. Totally agree. Akil, unfortunately, we have to wrap up today's episode of the Metrics That Measure It podcast, but thank you so much for being our guest. No, thank you so much, Ray. I appreciated it. And if anybody would like to reach out to you, what's the best place or how can they find you? Uh, so Akil Jabbar at Twitter or LinkedIn, or you can also check out our podcast, which is the SaaS District Podcast as well. And by the way, SaaS District Podcast, I hear you have some amazing guests, including the founder and CEO of a company called RevOps Squared. Yes, yes, we do. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much for being our guest today. And to our listening audience, really appreciate you listening to us today. And if you're enjoying our content and our guests, it would mean the world to us if you would go ahead and subscribe to our podcast, go ahead and provide us a rating and even a commentary on how we can make the show even better for you and to help your B2B SaaS and cloud career journey. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.